This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Oh, well, hello, everybody. Welcome. So glad to be in this place together. Welcome online. Those of you joining us from Cyberworld, we're glad that you're with us. Today's going to be a good day. I'm excited because not only do we get to do baptisms, we're going to do communion together, and we're kicking off the Christmas season here at New Life. Last night, we were leaving our friend's birthday party, and we were cruising through town, and we saw so many lights up at people's houses, and I was like, oh, it's on. Christmas is on. And we set up our Christmas tree in our our little apartment yesterday, so that was super fun. My job was just to get the box out and then get out of the way, so I, I, mission accomplished, it was fun. But like this, this is really that most wonderful time of the year, right, where we get to celebrate the greatest gift we could ever hope. The gift that God has given us, Jesus coming into this world, coming into each of our stories. And I love that we get to do that. And it's fun when you see people just go all out and they've got like their nativity scenes set up. And you're always like, is someone going to steal baby Jesus this year? I don't know, but let's just see what happens. And, and yeah, I, I think so often when we look at the way we celebrate Christmas today and the stories and how we tell it, I think sometimes we actually miss some of the important parts of the story. When we look at what Christmas is all about, we miss some of the key players in the Christmas story. Because like long before there were shepherds in the field, or long before there was even a baby in a manger, or angels singing glory to God in the highest, God was at work telling his story. Telling his story to bring us into this season long before so that we could know that God was at work for generations wanting to fulfill this promise he had given us of rescue and hope and peace, his love come for us. And so as we kick off the Christmas season, we're going to step back from the traditional story as we know it and realize that there are a whole lot of other people who are part of the Christmas story, that you may not always think of them as players in the story because God has chosen to include them in the story. And so we're going to take a look at this. Matthew, he's one of the guys that followed Jesus, and he wrote one of the stories about the life of Jesus. And yet when Matthew begins his story about Jesus, he doesn't start with Mary and Joseph and a baby in a manger. He actually starts farther back with with the genealogies. And this is what we see in Matthew's account. Bring up that first slide for me. He says that this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of Abraham, of David and Abraham. And so this is a big deal. What Matthew is trying to do is establish the the lineage of Jesus because that mattered back in that day that somebody would know, okay, we can rely on who this person is because we know where they came from. Anyone ever do ancestry? Yeah, how disappointing is that? You're like, I got to come from royalty. And you're like, nope, you're a peasant, right? But but, I mean, that's that's, it was a big deal back then too. And so they're going through this. And so it's no surprise that we would discover some famous names in the the lineage of Jesus and his ancestry. And so we see this in the very next verse. We see this, that this is Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. So you may not know those names, but to to the Jewish people in the first century, those are famous names. Like like, like teenagers would have these guys up in their, their posters on their walls. Like they were just like, those were the guys. And yet then we quickly see that there are some people that you may not have heard of. So we see this. We see that there was Judah, who was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Have you ever seen them in the nativity scene? Like, I've never seen a nativity scene where it's like, oh, there's Judah and Tamar and the the, the little kids. But they're here at the very start of the story because somehow through Matthew's writing, God wants us to know, hey, they're a part of the story too. 
And so whether you know them or not, whether you like them or not, they're included because God has put them there. And so I think maybe let's take a look at this bigger story of Christmas that we don't always think of and see, okay, well, who are they and why are they? And so we first meet this group of people way back in an old story in the Bible that comes from the first book, the book of Genesis. And, and they're actually an interruption to another story that's being told. It's the story of Joseph. Have you ever heard of him? He's the one with the amazing technical or dream coat, right? So it's like there's epic story of Joseph, but then right in the middle of the story of Joseph, God interrupts that story because he wants to tell us this amazing story about Judah and Tamar. And so they're here. They're a part of the Christmas story. And let's see, like, God, what, what do you want us to know about them that you would include them in the story? Now, quick warning. If you've never read Genesis 38, b- buckle up. This is why if this was made into a Netflix special, it would be TVMA. So, like, if you've got little kids, we've got this great kids programming. Or you're going to have some awkward conversations with your kids later. But you can figure it out. So let's jump in and see what's going on. In Genesis 38, we begin to meet these people that God's included in the story. And so this is what we read. We're told that about this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. And there he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. And so what's going on in the life of Judah? Judah is one of the older brothers to this guy, Joseph. And he's starting to begin moving forward in his own life story. So Judah has actually just left a very dark time in his life. He and his brothers just sold their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. So you think you have bad family dynamics. Welcome to this family. And so now Judah is moving on from a dark chapter in his life. And he's beginning to build his life. And so they, he's starting his family. And he and his wife, they have three sons. They have these kids, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And so let's see, God, what, what, do we want, what do you want us to know about them? Why are they in the story? And so we begin to see this in verse 6. It says, In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar. Okay, there she is. She's jumping in the story now. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. All right. Like sometimes, I, I don't know if you've ever been reading through the Bible, and you're like, could I have a little more detail, please? Just because I'd like to, like, what did Ur do just in case I'm having a bad day? Like, I would maybe want to avoid this thing. But, like, nope, we just know that he did something, and God's like, dude, you're done. But now that puts Tamar in a bad place. She's a widow. And so then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, go and marry Tamar as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. That might sound weird to us, but back in this culture, which was extremely patriarchal, the way it would work is if a woman was widowed and had no offspring that she could have the inheritance go through, a brother would step in and produce a kid with her, and then the kid would become like the older brother's offspring. Are you so glad we don't do it like that anymore? But that's just how they did it back then. So Judah's like, okay, okay, Onan, take care of the family like we're supposed to. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir, So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. (laughs) But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. (laughs) Too much information now, right? Like, okay, I don't need to know this. But here we go. There's this weird tangent in the middle of the story that's going on. And and it's like, okay, like God, what, why? What is this? Like, what do you want us to know about this? And, and, and maybe the lesson God's trying to help us understand is like, hey, if you're ever in a position 
of privilege in another person's life, don't take advantage of them. Because God is big on justice. God is big on taking care of the least of these. And here's Onan taking advantage of the moment. I think it would have been a totally different scenario if Onan's like, no, I'm not going to do that. But he is completely abusing and violating Tamar. I mean, can you imagine what it must have felt like every single time this happened? Because whenever Onan would use her like that, she's now, I don't have hope, and the only person protecting me is the one violating me. And maybe the point of the story that God wants us to know is, don't do that. (laughs) But the story continues, so maybe there's something else going on. So then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. (laughs) Which is so typical of a guy, right, to blame the girl? Ladies, yes? Yeah. I'm raising two daughters, so I'm trying to learn how to, like, really, like, elevate them to strength. But here's the thing. Like, Judah's responsibility is to take care of Tamar. And he immediately just punts it back. Oh, go back to your dad's house. He's not doing what he's supposed to do as the father figure in this household, as what would be a healthy man. Like, like a healthy man is a man who's not afraid of his strength, but he uses his strength to take care of other people. Judah is not a healthy man. Judah is not being a good man. So it's no surprise that he raised poor men as sons. And so here's the story that's unfolding. So he kind of kicks Tamar off to the curb. And so in the culture in that day, she, she has no hope unless there's something that this family will do for her. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. And so some years later, Judah's wife died. And after the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adolamite went to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. And someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep. And Tamar was aware that Shayla had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. And so what's a girl to do when the people that are supposed to be taking care of her don't? Well, Tamar does the math, and she realizes, I've got to take matters into my own hands. So she changed out of her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. And we're like, what is she doing? Like, what, is she hiding in disguise? Is she waiting to ambush him and, like, take him out? Like, what, are, what, what is she dressed like this? And so Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she covered her face. Oh, she's not dressed to kill. She's dressed to thrill. Because she's dressed as a prostitute in their day. And you're like, well, this is getting interesting and dark. This is where I would say the girl's out of the room so mom and I can finish the show. So then she sat by the road to the entrance, and so Judah noticed her cover. She covered her. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. So again, this is the moment where you think she would be like, aha, caught you. Now you need to take care of me, or I'm going to tell everyone what kind of man you are. But no, this is a twisted story. So she says, how much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. So they're negotiating. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send me the goat, she asked. Well, what kind of guarantee do you want, he asked. She answered, well, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick that you're carrying. Basically, she's like, give me your ID. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her, and she became pregnant. And afterwards, she went back home took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothes as usual. 
And I'm like, God, what is going on with this story? Like, this is like Fifty Shades of Grey dysfunctional family edition. Like, what is happening? Like, what's the point of this? And, and maybe, maybe the point that God wants us to do is don't do what Tamar does. Like, don't take matters into your own hand that you would make twisted choices instead of trusting that I, God, would look out for you and take care of you. Because when we oftentimes take matters into our own hands, we do dumb stuff. Yes? You can point at someone in the room if you don't feel like you can own that for yourself. But don't we do that? Yeah. And if that was the point of the story, maybe it would have ended there. But the story goes on. And so, like, God, what is with this story? And so later, Judah asked his friend Hera the Adolamite to take the young goat to the woman and to pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hera couldn't find her. So he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who was sitting beside the road at the entrance to Anam? Well, we've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So here I returned to Judah and told him, I couldn't find her anywhere. And the men of the village claimed they never had seen her. So I don't know what to do. And then let's keep looking for the things I gave her. I couldn't find her. So Judah said, well, I sent the young goat as she agreed, but you couldn't find her. We'd be the laughingstock of the village if we went back again to look for her. And so catch this, Judah's not concerned about his behavior. He's concerned about his reputation. Isn't that just like, bro, your life is a mess. What are you doing? So about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now because of this, she's pregnant. You would think that any man of average intelligence could do the math and figure out what has just happened, right? But not Judah, because he's bright as a stick. Judah's response was this, bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. And now I'm like, bro, I do not like you. Like, you are not giving a good reputation to men of any kind in any way in this moment. And yet maybe this is what God wants us to understand in this weird story that's being told, is that, like, we become so hypocritical when we condemn in other people what we condone in our own story. Because let me ask you a question. How did Tamar know that if she dressed like that, he would proposition her? What was his reputation? And so here we are in the middle of this moment, and maybe what God wants us to understand is, hey, don't be like him. Don't do this thing. Don't be somebody that judges other people when you've got mess in your own story. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Ooh. Now, I'm not saying she did a good thing, but man, she's crafty, yes? Like, don't mess with Tamar, man. And so now what's Judah going to do? Because he could double down, he could dig in, he could become more stubborn. Or he could recognize that maybe there's some mess in my life and some things need to change. So Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. And that's such an understated sentence, but you have to recognize the importance of this because what happens in this moment is a turning point. This is a turning point in the story because Judah recognizes his stupidity and he's like, I'm not going to do this anymore. I need to now take care of this woman because that's the responsibility I should have done from the start. And this becomes a turning point in his story. This becomes a turning point in Tamar's story. This becomes a turning point in the story. Because look what happens next. 
when the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. And while she was in labor, one of the babies reached out his hand. This is where the Bible's weird sometimes. And the midwife grabbed it, tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, this one came out first. But then he pulled his, ba- his hand back in, and out came his brother. And what? The midwife explained. How did you break out first? So he was named Perez. Then the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zara. And that's the story. <laughs> and you're like, God, what? What? And then we're suddenly, the next chapter, we're back with Joseph, who's been living as a slave in Egypt this whole time. And I'm like, God, what is the point of the story? I don't understand what's going on. And yet, as the story wraps up, we realize this isn't the only time we see them in the story. That there's this other moment that we already saw them in the story. We got to see them at the start. Like, this isn't the last we'll see of them, because all of them, Judah and Tamar and these twin boys, they're a part of a bigger story. And we saw them in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Hey, we see that there they are. There they are. In the, the, the lineage of Jesus, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And yet I would think that the way we so often celebrate Christmas, these would be the last people we would think would show up. Because when we put the story together, right, it's a holy story. It's a sacred story, right? We have the shepherds and the wise men, and everyone's wearing halos, and it's in stained glass, and And yet it seems like God's going out of his way to say, hey, this story is really big. And I invite all kinds of people to be a part of the story if they will let me work in their life. And so here in this moment, we realize something incredible. That I would look at this story, this nativity picture that we set up, right? That that we will put together so many times. It looks like this typically, right? Like, oh, there's no way Judah and Tamar should be at this story, right? Because people like them, they don't belong in that story. And yet I think what God wants to say is, of course people like them belong in the story. Because I'm a God who rescues people in the middle of their story. I'm a God who finds people as they are and says, I've got something new for you. Would you be a part of the story I'm telling? Because it's never too late for God to turn around a story when we say yes to him. When we give him our lives, when we trust him. And that's the point of Christmas. I think that's one of the beautiful things that we see in the coming of the story of Jesus. That Jesus is the one who comes into this world to rescue people like Judah and Tamar. To rescue people like you and me. That Jesus shows up and says, I've come to be with you. That's why they call him Emmanuel. God with us. And when he shows up in the story, we have the hope that, hey... Can I have a turning point too? Can I, have a tra- can I have a chance of change in my life, in my story? That the broken choices that I made don't have to own me. They don't have to define me. I don't have to be destined to failure because of something in my past. Because of what's been done to me or the things I've done. That there's hope of change and transformation. Because God has sent his son into this world to bring us into the hope of something new. And the first followers of Jesus, they understood this. That, that God has come to be a part of the story, and he changed their lives forever, so much so that they couldn't help but tell us the story. That's why we have the part of our Bible that we call the New Testament, because it's the story of the first Christians whose lives were transformed and changed by Jesus forever. And they were so excited to experience this for themselves. They're like, hey, we want to tell everyone. So one of those first Christians, a leader named Paul, he writes this about Jesus and what he's done for us. 
And so in Colossians, in his letter to some of the first Christians, Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 1 about Jesus. He says this about Jesus. He says that Christ, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. And he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. So this little baby in the manger, a lot bigger than anyone realized. And he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. And Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. And he's the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. And then listen to what Paul says. So God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. Think about that. God, in all his epic wonder and splendor, chose to come and be with us so he could help us. How beautiful is that? Anybody have some mess in their story today? Yeah, your laughter betrays you, but your hand reveals you if you're honest, right? For those of you that didn't raise your hand, welcome to the Club of Liars. We're all, right, like, we all have a mess in our story. And what I love about the Christmas story is that God is at work in the story, wanting to meet us as we are and lead us in the hope of something better. And so he goes on and he says this. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, and through him God reconciled everything to himself. Do you know what it means to be reconciled? It means for God to show up in the story and say, I can do something for you. I can transform the story if you will let me. If you will come to me, I can change your life forever. And that's the hope that we all have. Because he made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. And this isn't just for some people. This is for everyone, which is why God makes sure that we know about people like Judah and Tamar. Because if he can change their story, there's hope he can change anyone's story. And this is what Jesus has come to do. And so Paul says, so this includes you who were once far away from God. Because you were his enemies, separated by him by your evil thoughts and actions. And this is the stuff we don't like to talk about, right? Like, we, we don't mind talking about bad people when it's those people, but when it's our own story, like, we don't like to wrestle with this. But here's the truth. There's brokenness in our world, yes? And it's all around us. And do you know why there's brokenness in our world? It's because there's brokenness in us. And we perpetuate it through our choices. And what Paul is saying is, listen, it's never a path to life if you're walking away from the source of life. And yet the good news is that the source of life has come to reconcile us and bring us back to him once again. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ and his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So you want to hear some good news today? When you step into new life with Jesus, guess what happens? Your story has changed forever. You are now holy and blameless in God's sight, not because of your greatness, but because of the greatness of the one who's come for you. Do you know how freeing that is? 
So that means I show up here as I am with all of my struggle and my mess, and yet I stand here in confidence, not because of me, but because of what God has done in my story. And it's not because I'm a pastor that I get to do this. It's because I'm a loved child of God. And the same is true for you. So when Jesus shows up in your story, you can come into this place. You can walk in the ways of this world, the areas of this world, and you can stand before God holy and blameless, not because of your greatness, but because of the greatness of the one who's showing up in your story. And he's changing your life from the inside out. And so Christmas is the ultimate story of reconciliation, of God come to be with us, and Jesus showing up in our story to say, you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and whatever is going on in your story, come to me and watch what I will do. I will change you forever, and you will begin to become the person you were created to be. And so today, as we kick off the Christmas season, we are going to celebrate the reconciliation of what God has done in this world. And we're going to do this in a couple of ways this morning. The first way we're going to do this is through a time of communion. And then the second way we're going to do this is celebrating with people who are stepping into the story of God changing them by being baptized. And I I don't know, I can't think of a better way to celebrate Christmas than doing these two things. How about you? Because how cool is this, that we get to partake in celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And see, communion is his gift to us. It's not a religious ritual we do. It's a relational encounter with him where we go to the tables, and we take the cup, and we take the bread, and they're symbols of what he's done for us. Because Jesus said this right before he went to the cross, as he's celebrating that meal with his first followers. We're told that he took the bread, and he broke, and he says, okay, this is going to be a symbol of my body that's going to be broken for you. I will be broken so you don't have to live broken anymore. And then we're told he took the cup and he said, this, is, this wine is a symbol of my blood. It's going to be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. The price will be paid in full through my sacrifice so you can stand back to your feet and become who you were created to be. And so when we go to the tables, we go with our heads held high because we've been set free. When we go to the tables, we stand holy and blameless because of the one who invites us to the table. So I don't know if you've ever thought of communion like that before. You don't have to tuck your tail. You don't have to hide your face. You go to the table and you say, thank you. Jesus, thank you that you've done this for me. Thank you that you've shown up in my story, that you give me life. Thank you that there's a turning point in my story because of you. And I have now been set free. So as we go into this moment, I want to invite you to do a couple of things. First thing I want to invite you to do is celebrate the turning point that's literally on the table in front of every single one of us. That there's a turning point in your story. And I don't know about you, but I've needed like a thousand turning points in my story. And that's the beautiful thing about communion is to step back in that moment and go, thank you that that you would still do it for me again. And again and again and again because you love me that much. And then the second thing I want you to do in this moment is you go to the table and you take that celebration of what he's done. Lift your head up high. And with the biggest smile you can bring to your face, say, thank you. Thank you that my life is forever changed. So we're going to go to the tables. 
And then in a little while, we're going to transition into a time of celebrating baptism. And so if you're here today and you're like, I don't know if this is for me, here's what I would just want to tell you. It's for you. Oh, it's for you, friend. And maybe you're here like, well, I don't know if I'm ready. Welcome. I don't think any of us, if you think you're ready, you probably aren't. <laughs> it's when you realize, I don't know if I'm ready, that you're actually ready to let him meet you as you are. And I would just say, take this time in. Invite him to stir something in you. Go to the tables and just contemplate what he might have for you today. Because this is for everyone. And so, Jesus, we're coming. We're coming for you because you came for us. So as we go to these tables that are scattered around the room, would you remind us of who we are now because of you? That each of us can have a turning point in our story. Our lives can be changed forever brokenness, the mess, it doesn't define us. You have given us new life. You are our hope. You are the reason we say Merry Christmas. Christ with us. Amen, amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.